0: You are listening to International Open Podcast. This is the official podcast of International Open Magazine. Please head over to internationalopenmagazine.com to see the show notes of the podcast, articles, and more information. So, can we try to open it?
1: Well, I, I should say first, this is the International Open Podcast coming for the first time from Moscow. I'm here in Russia speaking English with a Russian historian. Very excited, and I forgot the most important ingredient to be an authentic international open podcast. But fortunately, my this guy across from me, who I'm about to introduce, he listened to some of the international open podcasts from Vienna. And heard that beer is an important part of the podcast, so he brought Russian beer. We have these cans of Russian beer that we can do. But, uh, so, I don't want to wait much longer, but could, could you just tell me, how do I pronounce, is it Kozel? Is it Kozel? Kozel. Kozel. So, my beer is from the Czech Republic? Yep. And what are you about to dig uh, into?
0: I think it's from St. Petersburg, ah. somewhere near Finland.
1: And how would you pronounce that? Uh, It's Baltica. Baltica. Yeah. Baltica, like the Baltic Sea? Yeah, exactly. Ah, Cool. So, um, I'm ready to open mine.
0: Yeah. So, this is the intro.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Estrovia. Or how do you actually say it?
0: (laughs) Um... I've heard it so many times in American movies. So sure. actually, but but what we... We, we we just started to say it like in the American movies. <laughs> <world>, so. <laughs> so now <For> you're <laughs> saying it like
1: Americans, trying yeah, to speak yeah, Russian. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. perfect for the yeah. podcast. How would you cheer just to your friends when you're not trying to sound like an American, trying uh, to sound like a Russian?
0: Uh, no, давай. No, давай. Давай, давай, like. Dubai? Dubai, Dubai, like Dubai, Dubai. Dubai. Yeah.
1: Oh, I really like this. I like it. It's sort of a maybe an amber or a dark amber. Like it's it's nice. Yeah. Cuzzle. Cuzzle. I've gotta remember that. Well, I I wanna introduce Sergei Bondarenko. And this is Derek Breen from the USA. I've been in Moscow for a week. It's my second time in Russia. I was first here only two months ago, and I loved it so much that I'm back. Last time was five days, this time is four weeks. And I was introduced to Sergey by our mutual friend Vladimir, who's pulling us together for a, a sort of history, technology, education project. And within hours, if not minutes, we were talking about film and music and and all sorts of things, and I asked him if he... Listen to podcasts in Russia, and he said, oh, "I've I listened to podcasts. I've been wanting to produce my own podcast. I even bought a microphone." And <laughs> like so two days ago, <laughs> <laughs> see, like right before, and so uh, now we're recording with this beautiful blue microphone. What's the model of this microphone?
0: Uh, they called it Yeti.
1: Ah, yes, the Yeti,
0: and you know, maybe it's all advertisement, but it was the the first one which I saw from all these, you know, articles about how should I podcast like properly. Yeah. (laughs) You should use blue Yeti (laughs) from blue (laughs) and all the stuff. So I think it was really not hard to to choose this one because it looks like right you know, a little bit like r2d2 from star wars i was
1: thinking it looks like an oscar it's about the height (laughs) of an oscar award but yeah now that you say it it is like r2d2 or or like those droids that would attack the jedis in the early prequels sure sure it's pretty cool
0: yeah a little bit sci-fi in it
1: yeah i like it i i used a blue um the original blue microphone the snowball Mm. which i still have although it's it's a little bit glitchy, but, um, that was, that was revolutionary when it came out being able to have this really sort of proper microphone. Mm-hmm. It's cool. So could you tell me a bit about yourself? Like what's your day job? What's the thing that pays the bills?
2: Um,
0: it's this big, uh, historical mm-hmm. enlightenment organization called, uh, Memorial mm-hmm. or in Russia we say just Memorial. Um, it was founded by you know, a bunch of guys who were interested in history of the Soviet Union. Uh, they were historians, freedom fighters, uh, some of them were in, in prisons or in camps during, uh, not Stalin's era, but Brezhnev's,
1: mo- most of them. Mm-hmm. And Can you tell us the, the approximate years of the Brezhnev era? Because some of our listeners were yeah. not alive when Brezhnev. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Including it's, you. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Inclur- you are you are yeah, like... Inc- including me,
0: including me. Yeah. Uh, Brezhnev came to power in 1964. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very painful transition uh, after Khrushchev. And, uh, he, and he was in, in Politburo during 1982, when he was completely out of his mind because of I don't know how actually should I pronounce it in English it was an in insult you, you, this thing with your brain in Russia was an insult mm-hmm. yeah uh, he had a couple of these kind of things during his like a stroke yeah yeah, Is yeah that yeah. it yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it, he had a couple of strokes during the 70s so basically when uh, the war in Afghanistan began he was like half out of his mind there are a lot of Really funny this job. is the war in
1: the early 80s in afghanistan yeah yeah yeah
0: exactly early 80s and uh it's a bit, a bit funny but still of course a bit tragic because he was the only leader with the power in the soviet union and he was like yeah you cannot even you know download the, or like make m- made a podcast with him because he was like he barely
1: uh, could talk you know during his like two or three years Past years i i don't know much about brezhnev and almost all that i know about the um the afghanistan war of the 80s i learned from rambo the <laughs> sequel to first blood where uh, rambo goes and wasn't it that the second one where he I goes to afghanistan was or was the, it the third
0: it's probably the third one the third. and
1: it's a pretty yeah. good source actually <laughs> <laughs> now that's a russian historian saying a pretty good source for learning about this war is the third sylvester stallone rambo film you heard it here first on an international (laughs) podcast
0: yeah i don't know i I don't think that we have like uh, i think we had some of you know really good movies about this war Mm -hmm. probably the most important one is the movie called uh, Naga, or just Naga, means, how means do you spell that? No, uh, no, ga, n, o, naga, which means basically like, just ah. like. And uh, it was based on the, you know, very strange script, was based on the version of uh, William Faulkner's story, which was about the, the which also called uh, the like. Oh. probably and it, it it's bec- it's about the man who lost his leg during the war and in that case during the war in Afghanistan and how he uh, deals with this post-war syndrome how he lived after the war in uh, in Moscow and uh, how he coped with this thing that uh, like like um, like a ghost of his leg talked with him Mm -hmm. during his dreams or something like that. Oh, wow. It's a really, really cool movie.
1: It also sounds incredibly timely when you think about all the, at least I think of all the American service people who are coming back from Afghanistan with missing limbs. Mm -hmm. Now, it's been happening there. There was a really kind of disturbing report about how all of these medical advances are kind of allowing people to live but with horrible horrible disfigurements and impairments and like at a certain level there the question is is it really worth them being kept alive Mm -hmm. but because the medical advances have gone so far they're they are being kept alive much longer and then on the the other end there are a lot of veterans who can't qualify for disabilities mm-hmm. even though they have disabilities more extreme than the disabilities of the veterans that qualified 10 or 20 years ago because now all these people that would have died in combat are living and requiring huge amounts of money to sort of rehabilitate keep them alive all, mm-hmm. all that sort of thing so it, and and the fact that it's the same country is is that history repeating itself like literally
0: yeah, yeah, and it, it also leads me to, you know, to this I just heard, or maybe I've heard it in the podcast, I, I think, from National Public Radio, mm-hmm. that they have a very special technique, technique how to deal with this, uh nightmares of the veterans, how they just try to teach them how to use their mental skills, how to prevent these dreams, how to just w- woke up from the dream, if you oh, have wow. this kind of dream, and uh, how should we manage these things with our own not post-war or post-war lives? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. That's interesting especially I'm a veteran of mm-hmm. Desert Storm who mm-hmm. who had dealt a bit with post-traumatic stress for a few years after that mm-hmm. and so I'm always curious like one of the um, one of the things that I read about with post-traumatic stress fairly recently is this trend of discouraging uh, the, the previous practice for post-traumatic stress was analysis, going deep, really trying to expel yeah. the demons, and more recently, uh, researchers are saying that people are being re-traumatized as they explore that experience after the fact. Mm-hmm. So in fact, the very thing that, that people have been doing intentionally might be deepening or extending post-traumatic stress rather than <laughs> alleviating yeah, it yeah, not yeah, yeah. not just for veterans but
0: yeah you're absolutely right because you know we, we in in memorial we have to deal with these, these things you know like a lot because we have a lot of problems with our own soviet history and with these guys who came from Chichnya in the mm-hmm. 90s and one of you know one of the greatest thing that i heard about it probably it was maybe one year ago when American researcher, her name was Katie Carut, Mm -hmm. and he wrote some really important books about trauma and how to deal with trauma. And he gave us a lecture about it, and it was really, really great. And she taught a lot of very important things. It was a little bit maybe nerdy or like post-Freudian. Maybe she talked a lot about these dreams and how how it really worked. But it still was really, really informative for me. Now, I, I, I still thought about it, you know, from time to time.
1: What is your role with uh, Memorial, Memorial? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, uh, now I just have to uh, write some articles for their mm-hmm. website, so it's maybe kind of uh, journalistic work from time to time I go to exhibitions or reading some books and making reviews or just or watching some historical movies or documentaries about history and uh, write uh, reviews uh, I'm also working with the memorial exhibition place and we will have I think in a month or two a very good exhibition about Varlam Shalamov mm-hmm. Do you know him? No, I don't. Uh, he is, um, you know, very, very, very important guy for our literature and history. But uh, you know, in the world scale, he's in the shade of Solzhenitsyn because Solzhenitsyn was the main guy. Yeah. But Shalamov was the true guy.
1: How do you how do you spell his last uh, name?
0: Shalamov. Shalamov. C H A L A M O V. Shalamov. Uh, i think yeah, i've is, never heard of him yeah honestly. yeah, yeah. There, there, there is a very good uh, english translation i think of his books mm-hmm. um he yeah he, he wrote a lot of uh, short stories about his time in uh Kolema called uh kalema stories basically mm-hmm. and uh you know our the, i think the last uh, nobel prize winner in literature called svetlana alexievich she's from uh, Belarus. he she just told that Varlam Shalamov for her, is the most important writer in the 20th
1: century. Oh, wow. So we were just... Cool. Wow, that's yeah. cool for our exhibition, really. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Thank you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> when and where is the exposition going to be?
0: Uh, it would be in... Um, exactly in Memorial Place, uh, which is uh, in the center of the city, near Hermitage Garden, which is between Pushkinskaya, Czechoskaya... Meykoffskaya Svetnaya Boulevard. It's, mm-hmm. it's. I think it's, it's a proper place.
1: And when will that be?
0: I hope that it will be in the end of February or maybe in the beginning of March. It will start, and I think it will be for the maybe half of the year or something. It's uh, actually it's European exhibition about Shalamov. I think it's called something like. Uh, to uh, to live or to write. This is, you know, some kind of uh, famous quote, I think from Pirandello or something like that.
1: And just before we started recording, you were telling me that you, I, I mentioned that I just spent time with Horst and some of the other folks that originated the International Open Podcast in Vienna, mm-hmm. and you were supposed to go to Vienna just... <laughs> what how long ago yeah just a month ago and i for what
0: f- uh, for be uh like a part of this big conference called mapping memories mapping memories mapping, is mapping, is that it mapping memories yeah and it was all about how should we deal with our traumatic memories in eastern europe because of course we have a lot of these things you know uh, especially in uh, post-soviet countries mm-hmm uh, and I really look forward to for this because I know that it would be like a huge conference. i never been in Vienna. I'm a big fan of this Linklater movie, which, you know... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah before, before sunrise. Before sunrise. Yeah. Yeah. And I... Like, on the last day, I was just lying in the bed, completely out of my mind. Ugh. Yeah. And so now I just s- sending them a lot of medical certificates, which... Because they needed because they paid for my uh, plane tickets. <laughs> yeah.
1: As if you were trying to get out of going somewhere you really wanted to go. Yeah, yeah. Like that's That just makes it that much worse. They're yeah, like yeah. grinding in the knife Yeah, Yeah, of really, you didn't really. It's a, it's,
0: for me, it's absolutely, you know, like Woody Island situation. I was yeah. Like, like, yeah, Man, I'm not only missed out, I yeah. just I have to deal with a lot of problems yeah. because of
1: it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Kafka also comes yeah, to mind. Yeah, but yeah, yeah um the but were you able to follow some of the conference online what was there enough of it uh did they have any video like in real time or near real time or were there some things that you could do yes yeah, at sh- that time to feel at least a little bit connected to it and
0: yeah i'm sure they had but
1: actually i'm not you know that important
0: part of this conference so yeah. i think they they have to deal with it without me and it was more or less okay for them but sometimes, especially in Memorial, we, we had these kind of problems because, you know, now in Russia, maybe for four or three years, we started to have really, you know, big problems with the visa, visas for the guys, you know, all around, all around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe one one or two years ago, we've had this big, big problem with the guy from Albania. He just couldn't, you know, have a visa to, to Russia. and. All the conference was with this big screen. This guy, oh wow, sitting in his uh, like big brother, yeah, like, like the like Apple the, commercial yeah, for yeah, the Macintosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he talked like half Albanian, half English. And our translator, sitting in the memorial, it tried to catch his Albanian words and translate it into Russian. And we have this strange mixture between Albanian, Russian, oh, wow. and English. And it still was very, very Kafkian, but still, still very cool. Mm-hmm. I liked
1: it a lot. Have you been able to watch some of? The, did they record some of the sessions so you could sort of hear some of the lectures and? and
0: yeah, I think so. I, I think Memorial have. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure Memorial have uh, his own YouTube channel, and mm-hmm. they put more or less all interesting videos like online. Sure.
1: Yeah. Oh no, I'm sorry. I meant for uh-huh. the um, Vienna conference that ah, you missed. The Vienna were, conference. were you able ah, to kind of really, dig in a really bit? A really, really
0: good friend of mine was there oh. so he, he basically like he skated me every day after this it was so uh, cool you know uh, it was with the music and theater piece oh, and no. it was like happening in you know a little bit with john cage style and you missed everything Ah, uh. okay i'll does <laughs> <thing>. oh,
1: no. <laughs> is that an annual conference or was this a special I, sort of
0: i'm not sure but i think it was the special one because it mm-hmm. was really it was like really huge like yeah 50 participants from all around the world or something like that
1: do you have a sense of how big the audience was like the number of participants Um,
0: I'm not sure I think the more Maybe near 100 people
1: Mm -hmm. overall overall, What do you think of conferences in general like I because of my background and writing a book and and doing a lot of teaching with technology it's I find it really useful to go to conferences for meeting people who think beyond their region or their country and and I'm growing a lot from that but I wonder about other disciplines how much value there is especially with the cost and where the ruble is right now mm-hmm. and I imagine you have to really weigh the the cost and the, the benefit
0: mm, I think it, it's a very hard question probably I don't know you tell me i think in your case it should be more like workshops or not yeah Mm -hmm. i think it's it's more useful in that way because when we talk about historical conferences in russia from my from my experience it was they were more or less crap all of them Mm -hmm. Uh, because i don't know because if it's something really interesting or if it's just like very gifted or talented guy like something really really good you wanted, you know you wanted to hear it like half an hour you wanted to read his book or something like that and you know uh, my my experience is that you have like seven or ten or maybe fifteen minutes and it's not good enough and there are a lot of you know protocol stuff that you have to just have to deal with the hours with the, like dinner in time with all these questions which is not question but like i just i w- just want to say that blah 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 yeah. and it's not the yeah. question and yeah. it takes like takes us you know just like in completely different direction that this really bright guy like just like told us for 10 minutes and uh, so on uh, at the same time i really don't know how to deal with some of my stuff because sometimes i have this not like maybe maybe article or some like bunch of ideas that I want to share with people, mm-hmm. and I have no other, sometimes I have no other way to, to do it, and I have some places that I think is quite are quite good for this, uh, especially I want to mention, special mention for European University in St. Petersburg, yeah. they are really great, and uh, in that university I have two quite good conferences, and uh,
1: this place I like. But were those history specific? Uh,
0: it's a humanitarian university. They have uh, anthropology part, historical part. Uh, I think uh, they deals with uh, literature, with sociology, with politology.
1: But the um, the conferences there the were conference, they humanities conferences or were they sort of more specific uh, they, to history?
0: They have they've had a lot of different ones. But I was twice uh, in the conference called like in Russian it's like how it's like constructing Soviet like ah. we tried to construct Soviet from our time and mm-hmm. and so on
1: yeah and they're quite good cool yeah. and are there is there a project that you're working on now that you or are one that you're working towards working on is there something that you're really excited about doing that you might like to share a bit about um,
0: Maybe just a little bit, because uh, it's uh, about sports, ah. <laughs> and I know I know that it's it's a forbidden theme for our podcast. But
1: no, no <laughs> I, I just said earlier that if we um if if there were podcast episodes that were exclusively about sports, I wouldn't be in the room. Okay, but, uh, it's, but uh, I'm not against sports. Yeah, I'm just against personally talking about them because I okay, have no okay. knowledge.
0: But but I think it's 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 story w- uh, worth sharing. Yeah.
1: Um. There
0: is there is this guy. He is from uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, his name is Bob Edelman. He's a historian, and he wrote couple of really really great books about Soviet cultural sport history. Oh wow! And when I was in the university, and I made my uh, now in Russia we, we call it it's, it's diploma. It's like like a paper that you should just to finish uh, university like diploma diploma, yeah, like diploma yeah. yeah and my diploma was about uh, cultural influence of football or soccer uh in the soviet union in the 30s huh. during this you know very 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 hard stalin's times with terror purges and so on and maybe one week before i have to just you know put it uh, and just have to finish finish it. Uh, I've read Bob's book, and I was shocked because you know all you know all my ideas was in that book. Just wow. all the citation, all the quotes was from the same books. You know, in so the same cool. direction, and I was I was really traumatized because I, I realized that <laughs> every person which will see my work and his book <laughs> completely will just realize that I just stole all my ideas from his book. <laughs> I was amazed. And when I read his second book, uh, which was a lot more painful, because it was my, my own uh, soccer team called Spartak Moscow. <coughs> and this book called Spartak Moscow History of the People's Team in the Workers' State. And after it, I was just I just wrote him an email, said, like, you ruined my life. <laughs> I, I, I have to do something with it. And uh, and I wrote the first Russian review to his book. And he told me that, ah, oh, you, you're the one, you're that guy. I, I oh, wrote, that's I, so I, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. I wrote that that's book so cool. just especially for you. Because, you know, you just have,
1: only you realize how I did it wow. and so on that's why you have to go to New York so yeah, you can yeah. meet him
0: yeah I, I met it I meet him twice here in Moscow oh, cool. he is a good friend of mine now and now I'm working for the open translation for his book because I have no contract with any like uh, public houses but uh, publishing houses but I have my own blog on the big sport website mm-hmm. and I m- make some kind of open open source uh, translation.
1: So he, did he, does he own the rights to the book?
0: Uh, we, together with him, we wrote a letter to his Oxford University Press guys, uh-huh. and uh, they said, like, I want to make it, you know, I want to publish it for free
1: people of Russia, let Sergei do it, yeah. and, yeah, and I just, I'm on the way. That's so cool. So, um, when did you start that project?
0: Um... Six or seven months ago.
1: Mm-hmm. So we can link in the show notes to... So pe- is it available for people to read parts of it as you're translating sure, it? Sure,
0: sure. But it's all in Russian.
1: <laughs> well, I'm hoping there'll be some, some Russian speakers. Yeah, sure. Uh, the, uh, the real hope that I have is that maybe we could establish an ongoing podcast. Because it's international open podcast. <laughs> The idea is that it will grow beyond just being one or two or three people in one city. Mm -hmm. So uh, meeting someone like you really made me think, oh, this is great. I couldn't imagine a better person to to be exploring history and pop culture and and all sorts of cool stuff here. And particularly the fact that you just said the magic words, open translation. (laughs) So the fact that you're sharing this work and I, I think that's really an important model, to that maybe there are other fans who could reach out to authors and yeah, say, sure, sure. your work isn't available in my country, in my language, mm-hmm. but uh, particularly when it's writing about your country, like about your history, and it just makes me think, wouldn't it be great if, if we could somehow help foster that mm-hmm. as part of uh,
0: yeah, that would be really great
1: because you know my my lead idea was that
0: i i'm really tired of being alone <laughs> with this book in this country yeah. As you know i i i have to talk about it i have to just like sharing some ideas about it and now with this blog with like thousand well like like a thousand subscribers uh i you know i have this experience of you know I I read the comments. Some of them are mm-hmm. good, some of them are not good, but it made me think a lot of a lot about how should we deal this kind of with these kind of ideas and this kind of books mm-hmm. here in Russia.
1: Do you do you have a lot of involvement with sports in history? Are there other things that you do tied to your background in history but applying it to sports? Um it's really
0: hard to tell, but um the, the main thing is that you know all this sports, or even sports cultural history, is very, very dubious, or and and you know, in in Russia, because even even in United States or in, in Europe, sometimes even now, when you talk, I'm just like sports historian or something like that. It's like oh blah blah blah, it's very funny, uh, but it's it's not it's not so serious. Mm-hmm. But I think when we talk about cultural sports history, especially in post-totalitarian countries, it's very, very useful because, you know, basically in Stalin's era, we have no free, like, free public culture. We have no free freedom in, you know, freedom of speech, for sure. We have no this, like, kind of expression in movies or in literature, but sports was a different case. Mm Because, you know, with all this spontaneity, you know, with all this, you know, a lot of involvement of millions and millions of people, my main idea is that that sport is some kind of uh, superculture super, super culture in especially in Stalin's era when you have basically nothing to to do with you know the high culture you have to do something with this kind of more grounded culture
2: hmm
1: something like that very interesting have you read fever pitch sure <laughs> what do you think of it, Does I,
0: it? I like the book Maybe not not so much as Bob because Bob Edelman he said that it was one of his big influences. Oh really? Page. Yeah, he liked it a lot. Maybe maybe I, I just uh, I read it in Russian. Maybe in Russian. Maybe we have not so n- not so great translation. I don't know mm-hmm. because Bob and I, Bob is a, is very big influence on me, and he said that Fever Pitch is like great.
1: I can definitely say that um, Nick Hornby, as a writer, is is one of the better of this sort of. I, I don't know if I would call him pop fiction. He's he's uh, maybe he's on that. He's in that gray area between pop literature and literature. Like you know, he's uh, like Zadie Smith. I think is in a similar mm-hmm. another British writer, same uh-huh. sort of generation. Um, so I, but he. He's a phenomenal novelist. I'm incredibly fond of a novel of his called "How to Be Good." It's maybe my favorite of his. I think oh, I've read three or four of his novels. "How to Be Good" is is really interesting because it's exploring religious fundamentalism and sort of hippie or or like cult ish. Like, what is it that draws an average middle class suburban? husband mm-hmm. to a would-be cult leader it's sort of at the heart of that book but told through the the eyes of the wife who's very skeptical of mm-hmm. not just this cult leader but of religion in general like she's definitely a humanist uh-huh. and so it was really it was really great i think it's one of his only books not made into a film uh-huh. because of yeah. religion yeah, <laughs> like maybe. that topic is not one that any studio is going to yeah, be yeah. taken on anytime soon so, so
0: so we have that i think kind of my perspective kind of creepy movie with Hugh Grant but a very good movie oh yeah about if, a boy about a boy but I really it's not enjoy, bad really. it's not bad maybe it's it's my personal
1: but thing the book is much I mean okay. you know yeah, yeah. I re- the, it's a great novel really uh-huh. great read uh-huh. and
0: high fidelity yeah probably.
1: high fidelity classic yeah, yeah like yeah, yeah. and I, I like the film quite a bit too but yeah, the book yeah. is really
0: yeah yeah I like, I like the movie probably because of Jack Black oh yeah um, the book was kind of influenced on me, yeah, maybe when I was 18 or
1: mm-hmm. 19. Yeah, I think what you would enjoy, I wonder if they're available online, do you, do you know that Nick Hornby is a music critic and a book critic for yeah, Believer yeah. magazine? We, do you have that magazine I, I, here?
0: I'm, I don't think so, but we, we've we had a Russian translation of his book called Thousand Songs or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. It was about all the important songs for him and it really was like his musical critic thing and actually it was a little bit too pop for
1: me yeah i haven't read that yeah
0: it was like big parts of it was about nelly fortada or bruce springsteen which is like a little bit like too pop for me but but still but still sure i like his style anyway
1: I think you would enjoy reading some of the um, he, the column that he has, or the the series that he has in Believer magazine. I think it's called "What I'm Reading," mm-hmm. and it has some really fun Hornby-esque mm-hmm. sort of affectations. Yeah. Like he lists the five books, the books that he's bought as well as the books that he's reading. Uh-huh. So it's <laughs> it's it's sort of and and he makes fun of himself a bit because sometimes he's Sort of readily admitting that he's not gonna, um, he's never gonna read this one book. Like he mm-hmm. bought it, probably won't read it, or there'll be a book that he started to read and he's not mm-hmm. getting into it. And when Believer Magazine began, it grew out of um, McSweeney's, mm-hmm. which is a really cool—you've heard of it—this this sort of literary journal, but mm-hmm. with this sort of attitude, like a mm-hmm. punk rock literary oh, yeah, journal. Sure, sure. One one of the great crowning achievements of my life was when I they. Published one of my pieces just on their website. It wasn't in their uh-huh. yeah, thing, sure. but to have it on the website and yeah, it, they yeah. had it on the homepage for a week, and it was the greatest thing. Yeah, it was thing. just one of these humor <laughs> lists. Yeah, sure. Like it was, so I, I'll I'll link to it in the um, in the notes just because I want more people to read the work that I published with mcsweeney <laughs> And this is like 2004, I think. I was living uh-huh. on a hippie commune mm-hmm. in rural Virginia. And I came, I'd been reading McSweeney's since the beginning and like really would read every bit of it. And one day it just popped into my head, this idea, something like an an alternative to the Ten Commandments. It would be, what if there were more than Ten Commandments, just like in the Mel Brooks movie where he goes (laughs) from like 15. Uh But I thought what would surely the Lord would revise his work. So these are the commandments revised out of the and so I had a lot of fun doing that. But the, the what made it most successful is that the, this girl in high school I had the biggest crush on and went on one date with. And she went to Harvard. I went into the Navy. Like totally different directions. Mm-hmm. Well, wouldn't you believe, out of the blue, I get an email from this, this now young woman uh-huh. saying... That was hilarious. I saw your piece yeah. on Mick Sweeney's. And I was like, she's the only one yeah. in the state of Massachusetts that had probably ever heard of Mick Sweeney's. Mm-hmm. So that was like, ah, oh, it warmed my heart. Like, yeah, yeah. It was really like a high fidelity moment or like something yeah. that Nick Hornby would write. But um, they did, they published one or two books collating his What I'm Reading. And the most hilarious bits are... When they created, um, so it was Dave Eggers and his team that created Believer Magazine, and they had this idea that they they wanted to be different from other literary journals, and they really wanted to focus on pop culture, but in a deep, meaningful way, Mm -hmm. and there was this sort of, I don't remember if, I don't know if it was written, unspoken, but we don't want bad reviews. Mm -hmm. Like this isn't a magazine where you're just going to tear something apart. So if you're doing a film review, it should be something you you're passionate about. Uh And and that resonates with me. I like the idea of, of digging deep into something that's worthwhile rather than just cutting something apart. But if you're doing a, a, a ongoing, you know, series called what I'm reading, what happens when you get to a book that you don't like? So he writes hilariously sort of, all around the fact that he hates a book like he can't and he's making fun of himself of of believer magazine of Mm -hmm. of having rules for writers and that's the best writing like very cool um yeah
0: yeah. as as a book critic i you know maybe never have this privilege of writing about books that i don't like basically because yeah. if, it, if I don't like it it's not worth mention or something like that and, yeah. and I have a lot of stuff that I should write about especially you know our, mm. a, a lot of historical books because which I have you know very big envy maybe because you know we basically have no, no I don't know how to say it it's not only websites you know no sources to make you know a lot of stuff to publish because you know if we have like Thousands or maybe like maybe like hundreds of good um, websites, magazines about literature, history, culture. It would be one case, but now we have basically maybe at least maybe ten or twelve good ones, mm-hmm. and it's not good enough because we sometimes I I have some ideas and I know where where should I put it, maybe on the podcast.
1: I wonder if you could assemble a list of ten. Five, ten, 10, however many and we could we could also link to those so if people are curious, like, what would be um, you don't have to go through them now but I, I think it would be valuable for people to yeah, sure, but have you a know, list like if, that
0: if you know Russian language and and if you hear after all, you hear our podcast for sure, you know all these 5 or 10 links, but still, but yeah. still why? do you want to name some
1: <laughs> now, like
0: uh, sure I uh, our memorial website called uh, Uroki Story, which means like history lessons mm-hmm. uh, there is this big uh, cultural website called Kolta Kolta
1: Is that Russian for culture? Col- um, Kolta?
0: No, I think it's some it's not Russian word oh. it's ha- it, it have to deal some with Kolta, like this ah. uh, this gun, yeah. and something with Oh like the Colt forty five. Yes, something like that. Yeah. Um I don't know. I I really like this um uh pa- newspaper called uh, trotsky Troitsky Variant. Mm-hmm. It's a really geeky one, you know, for the geeky scientists. I, I really cool. like their articles because there I know. Uh in a lot of cases I just, you know, realize that I I know Russian language but I, I understand barely like Maybe twenty percent of what I'm reading right now because it's really hard. It's really geeky, but still really cool.
1: Uh, and maybe it's my top three. You know? Yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah. I mean, th- what I w- the English language one I was thinking of as you were describing it is Medium. Mm-hmm. Medium.com, which I'm I'm increasingly drawn to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I like it, and it, but it's only recently that I really understood what the site was. Like Mm -hmm. I'd been somewhere along the way I read an article on medium thought it was fantastic Mm -hmm. and then subscribed to their daily sort of list Mm -hmm. But I didn't really get I thought it was an online magazine I didn't get a sense that it was actually a a platform Mm -hmm. for writing that it sort of like a wordpress or Mm -hmm. but but that they also Paid writers so that there would be that sense of it being more than just wordpress Mm -hmm. and and I like it I think it's a good mix because you have the the really accomplished writers writing long-form and short-form short articles that bring the readers and then you have writers maybe like us who have the opportunity to rise through readership if we come up with a really compelling piece of writing and that's that's a model that i'm that i believe in uh, i i think it's it's not as open as other models but there's something to be said for expertise and I think it's a really delicate balance that you need to find between the professional world and the amateur world. There was a book I read several years ago called, the I think it was The Age of the Amateur or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it was looking at, or The Rise of the Amateur, I think that's it. Um, with the, now amateurs can produce things very quickly and find a really large audience sure, sure. going on a TED talk or, yeah. or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but even within the book they were recognizing that it still takes certain professional like exemplars as we would say in education like having something that's that's that really draws people if you're going to have a community around it or a magazine around it versus you know the difference between a zine and a magazine Mm -hmm. like i still read new yorker magazine Mm -hmm. and I'd no longer read Wired magazine. Mm-hmm. I now get most of my, a lot of my cultural stuff, at least in New York, mm-hmm. from New Yorker. But the, I, I'm not finding it as useful to have a magazine for tech culture because it moves so fast. And mm-hmm. Wired in particular used to be a fantastic magazine that you would read cover to cover. There were so many new things. Yeah, sure, sure. And now it's really more like, I think it's gone from this, um, this is something I've been thinking a lot about recently when I was growing up, there was this sense of wonder. And for those of us that read science fiction, it was especially intense and Marvel comics even had a, um, a comic book and that, that gave me the title, which is, uh, yeah, like, w- like what if, mm-hmm. like yeah. what if, something 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 Mm -hmm. in the the comic book it would be what if spider-man was more spider than man or something like it would be like like what could happen um so it we went from sort of like the what if thing to what's next Mm -hmm. like now it's just about what's the next iteration of a phone or a a watch or a computer or. So
0: you mean you? We just found the the main direction, and we just lead in this direction.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that it's. I think it's. I'm far less excited about what's coming than I used to be. Mm-hmm. And in the '70s and '80s, and maybe part of the through part of the '90s, I was. I I was really a futurist, I think, an amateur futurist, Uh really thinking, wow, we can transform society, and there are all these possibilities, and you would read like Ursula Le Guin or Arthur C. Clarke or or these writers, and they were presenting whole different directions that society (laughs) could go in a thousand years in the future, and now you go to a science fiction film, and it's just like a slight difference or it's do you know what i mean
0: yeah sure but you know <laughs> in, kind of, in kind of funny way it took us back to this you know rocky four stuff cause, yeah you know I, I i've read some some things about it um which goes like that when were the times that it was the about all about the battle between two systems between soviet union system and uh, american oh, yeah. system yeah there were more like ideas like you said like what if different you know ideas how should we do some things this way or that way and after crash crash of the Soviet union god bless this this big crash uh but after it we have more or less one basic main line main line capitalistic main line and uh all other ideas was more or less dubious or even extremist and so on so so probably it has you know something this with this idea i don't know
1: so should we hope that what's going on in syria escalates so that it will improve our pop cultural choices
0: Uh, um it's a big ask actually (laughs) yeah
1: yeah. of of course my tongue is as firmly in my cheek as it could be on that yeah yeah. i i was groaning as i was saying it like Uh But we were we were also talking a bit earlier about um, since since I brought it up uh, <laughs> and maybe to <laughs> forgive myself for treating something so lightly you mentioned something that really intrigued me that you've done some work at a Syrian uh, not Syrian but at a Russian or Moscow mm-hmm. refugee center yep. that um, that was some sort of educational initiative yeah, is that right
0: yeah, sure sure um, it This is the, uh, you know, the main uh, refugee uh, center called uh, which, you know, have to work with all more or less all uh, refugees uh, here in Moscow. And um, my work there was that I was a volunteer as a history teacher with uh, their basic school because you know uh, we here have a lot of problems with uh, how our uh, school works and sometimes if you don't know Russian language or if you know Russian language but you have no right to go to the public school Mm -hmm. basically if you are a refugee and you you can be refugee here for years and years and uh, of course your children you know they have to learn something Mm -hmm. and for that children, they uh, opened this kind of uh, free school, free lessons, all led by volunteers. And my part was basically history lessons, or just like lessons about everything, because mm-hmm. you know, most of them don't know basically more or less anything about history, about you know how you know, the world is around and something like that. <laughs>
1: so where would you start uh, I guess I have a couple questions mm-hmm. that are related one is do you get to choose what you teach I imagine as a volunteer you have a lot of choice around mm-hmm. that and if that's the case how do you choose and what would what what did you start with like which historical period or what kind of lesson mm-hmm.
2: uh,
0: you know in my in my case it wasn't very hard to choose because uh, I worked uh, basically with uh i think it was like two or three guys and maybe three or four girls mm-hmm. from time to time and uh, they all were from chechnya probably one guy was from uh, uzbekistan or maybe one guy and one girl were, were from uzbekistan and so they know russian language mm-hmm. and we have no this language barrier and all all of them are more or less went to school so my role was that just like to explain them all the you know, these school textbooks that, you know, sometimes they don't, you know, have a goal, you know, they don't know what they're, exactly they're talking about in these mm-hmm. books. So we just went, you know, from chapter to chapter, and my, my main role was just to discuss this thing, and just to make the impression that it's, it isn't just so hard, and I'm a, you know, a normal person, and they're normal guys, and they know, and they will know how to deal with these things. Mm-hmm. So. I think it's more have to you know it's it was more about just like discussing more about like about uh, maybe um, psychology like the idea that they can just be okay with me here in Moscow in this you know very sometimes very hard uh, circumstances for them it, it I think it, it was more like that and as far as I understand the main goal of this school it's not about it's more about like to be okay than just you know
1: education sure could you give us a sense of the scale of the school like how many people
2: mm-hmm. mm.
0: now i think it's um katya forgive me if you're hearing this uh, now uh-huh. it's 70 or 80 i think and um, S- students uh, coming in yeah 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 and they are from uh, most of them are from uh post-soviet union countries mm-hmm. but some of them are from uh, so-called black Africa so like Congo uh, some guys are from uh, Afghanistan uh, f- even from Syria mm, I think someone from Cameroon from uh, even from uh, Ethiopia mm-hmm. uh, you know from the countries that they have uh, no choice to go to right way to europe or united states and visa to russia was uh, l- less expensive and mm-hmm. they just basically bought a visa to russia and thought that russia okay russia it's part of europe i'm just you know heading to russia and right, <laughs> I i'll I will cross the border and it's a nightmare because you know a lot of guys just stay there for years because they have no right to go you know in europe and they have nothing to do here and it's a very very you know hard thing to do really. is
1: uh, is learning Russian the highest priority for most or all of them, or is it not such a high priority because they're getting that outside of school?
0: Yeah, it it it, re- it depends, you know. And in in Moscow, we have very, I think, very just very basic program of how to you know how to make these lessons available for for mm-hmm. these people, and if of course if they want to stay on or if they have. It, it, it's often case of, you know, the people who came from Chechnya or some post-Soviet countries that they really want to like, to be there, yeah. and they, you know, one case that more or less they will know the language, or if they don't know the language, sure, they have to learn it. But mm. in, in, I think in Sadiezti, we, we always have, like, had, like, couple of more volunteers, which, you know, especially, you know, their thing is how to learn, the uh, they know sometimes French or English, and they have to just be a teacher in Russian for these guys.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do they have computers or, or facilities for learning? It, or is it really a raw? Like, uh, what are the resources? Are the uh, books being provided? Are computers, Internet access, MOOCs? Are they, are they able to when learn? I, when I learn?
0: was a volunteer, we ha- we've had only, you know, uh, the place to be. And it was really maybe like... Two or three um, rooms, and we have had to share it with uh, uh, the you know the whole institution of Krajanska Sadyestwa with administrators, uh, with the lawyers who worked with the people you know with their problems with the you know border law or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard. Uh, after it, <laughs> after I, I, I left, it, it was even harder because uh, a couple of months ago. You know, Moscow government uh, took away the license of even of this place from Grudzenskaya Street, and now it's a big struggle. They try to find a new place and try to find the finances, you know, to work um, one more year or two. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, uh, is it is it often the case in Russia, because of the struggle, uh, they had some publicity. And now uh, I think they they had maybe one or two more or less, you know, sponsors who, who can give them the money like for one year or two of working. And with this money, I hope that they will have the uh, computers and the place to be, mm-hmm. I hope so. Cool.
1: And how did you find out about the refugee center? What was it that brought you there originally?
0: Uh, Oh, of course, it was because of the girl. Because I want, yeah. I want to impress her,
1: and when uh, a friend—this was... is your now girlfriend, no, or another one, no, oh. another one. Oh, <laughs> I take it back. Yeah, <laughs> sure, it's, it's okay. Uh, we will, you know. We all have those. I have many of those stories of things for that sure, I did sure. trying to impress a for girl. For sure, for
0: sure. So I wanted, so I wanted basically to impress her, and mm-hmm. I have a friend of mine uh, who who just worked in in this organization. Hmm. And I thought, okay, okay, it's a possibility, you know, to mm-hmm. do something good for the people. If I'm not the right person for her, maybe I will be the right person for this children. <laughs> and, yeah. and so on, yeah. But, you know, it, it's, it's a good way to make him something good. Yeah. Well, it
1: sounds like, a, if nothing else, it made a baby. Yeah, sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure.
1: You now have a, a child who's four? Th- th-
0: yeah, yeah, she's four. Mm-hmm. Her name is Vera. Uh, which is in English, it's faith. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know old Russian name. Oh
2: yeah.
0: Uh, yeah yeah, it works. It worked in a very strange way, but it
1: worked. <laughs> yeah. And you, the um, Vera's mother is the former director of the yeah, refugee yeah, center. Yeah. Is that right?
0: She, she was a director for the almost ten years.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so this is a really good plug for volunteering. You you should really volunteer. In such centers, because you never know who the director might be, yeah, and yeah, sure. what it will lead to. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really good. Yeah, it's
0: it, it really it's a really good place to meet people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and you know, I, I've had a lot of friends who worked there before me. I've had some friends who worked after me because of because of me because I was like a, this cool guy that you know I worked in this organization. Oh yeah, it's a cool place, you know. I just hanging out with these Chechnya guys and their
1: music and their food
0: and so on. And they're like, "Whoa, cool!"
1: And do you have friendships that have connect that have continued with refugees that you met there?
0: Um, I don't know if I can call it friendship, but my, my, you know, my first pupil, uh, in that time he was probably 12 or uh, 13. Now he's 18 or 19. And yeah, I, sometimes, you know, we hanging out, but you know, maybe once or twice (laughs) in
1: Well, we discussed at the beginning, um, before we started recording, that at a certain point we would change roles. Mm-hmm. We since it's the open yeah. podcast, and you resisted finding out too much about me before, yep. so that you could grill me a little bit the way that I've been grilling you. Yeah. So why don't we? Uh, why don't we turn? We'll, we can keep our seats. Maybe we'll take a quick break. Yeah, sure. And then um, we'll come back, and and you can. And just you can rolls. take over. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. and then, you know and. Speak some Russian, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sure, sure. That's
1: it. Were you speaking English there? Or
0: uh, yeah. I sp- uh, mm, bec- probably because I was in that kibbutz that, you know, there were a lot of guys from Australia and New Zealand there. Mm-hmm. So basically, they all more or less speak English, and who not speaking English, they speak Russian. Spoke yeah. Russian. And uh, I was in the you know very great community of the volunteers, and they were mostly from Colombia or Mexico or from India.
1: That's another good topic for another episode that we could explore. Me having lived in a commune in the U.S. and you on the yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah,
0: I'm very interested actually in your hippie commune experience.
1: Did Uh, I send you the links of the Russian news crew that made a documentary about the community? No. It's uh, it's Moscow. I'll send you the link right now so I don't forget. It's um, I think it's a pretty major media company in Russia, and they did like two, maybe, fifteen or twenty minute. I I just sent them to somebody here. Um, let's see. I think it's Russia now or R R. I'll find the link. Yeah, I was just visiting there again in Virginia in November. I was there for a week. Mm -hmm. So I go back pretty frequently. Uh, Let's see now. Oh, it must have been on Facebook. That's what I don't like about using Facebook as a communication tool, which it seems like is, is required here maybe in part because i'm not on the russian social network or but i really prefer email for sure centralized communication yeah, yeah. and then i use these this chat stuff very rarely like yeah, for a quick little yeah chat.
0: but in russian on facebook it's more or less like i don't know if you're quite intelligent if you have you know some good friends you have to be on facebook yeah. because if you're yeah. not on the facebook you basically not exist and that's that's my experience for last like seven or eight years
1: that's what it's looking like to me. Yeah, and and sure. that's so different from the way we use it in the U.S. Sure, sure. We use I, Twitter, I think, way sure. more than... For more. sure, for sure. And then we have LinkedIn for the professional communication. We talked about that a bit last time.
0: Yeah, it's that, interesting. I think it's, Let's you know, see. in Russia, it's more like, you know, in the Middle East. Because, you know, if we have this kind of revolution, you, 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 man, you will be out of revolution if you not use a Facebook, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You, you will not the know. revolution
1: will not be televised yeah. but it will be on social media
0: yeah yeah sure
1: <laughs> have you read any Marshall McLuhan
0: sure sure I know him I just you know just yesterday uh, you know at night I saw this very very good documentary uh, it was about uh, debates between uh, William Buckley Jr. and Gordon oh yeah off. yeah
1: I want to see that documentary yeah, it's, it's on Netflix uh, I, it's sure yes yes yeah i do want to see it yeah yeah i just because i've seen clips through the years like
0: like, the trailer was amazing movie was really great and and, and i saw just i i i know you know i liked a lot that you know that period of history in 1968 this you know transition from johnson to nixon because of you know maybe from hunter thompson stuff or something like that and you know, and that movie was that part of you know that Chicago big riot in Chicago during uh, uh, democratic uh, elections. Oh yeah, yeah, and they you know the, the whole line was like, the whole world is watching, the whole world is watching. Then they you know they were by by, yeah. by, by police. Yeah.
1: I just saw a trailer last night that I wanted to show you, but now I can't remember the. I'm trying to remember the actor because I can't remember the title, but it's. You know, Stephen King wrote an alternate history book. Mm,
2: Yeah, I've heard about
1: about, it. And I hadn't thought about it at all, even though we were talking about alternate history a lot for the past (laughs) two days. Yeah. And now it's going to be a television series on Netflix or, no, no, not Netflix, on Hulu. Uh This um, streaming site, but with an all star cast. Mm. And it looks really interesting. Like, so it's sending this. Guy back to the future to prevent the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and back to the past yeah, okay, to the future. <laughs> it's, <different. laughs>
0: yeah, it's a different story. Yeah, I've, I've heard that from National Public Radio. I've heard that ah. the quite successful was that uh, that show last year. Yeah. That it was um, based on Philip Dick's novel. It yeah,
1: was, Man in the High Castle. Yeah, exactly. Yep. From it,
0: if what if Nazis?
1: Yeah. were I watched the whole thing when I was back in the U.S. in November. And it's pretty good. It's not, I don't, I, I think it's being overhyped and overpraised, but maybe because I've read a lot of alternate histories and mm-hmm. they haven't. Yeah. To them, they're like, wow, what is this, this thing? thing yeah. um, it has some interesting aspects and it has some aspects that are a little bit infuriating mm-hmm. because it's, uh, but I'll let you draw your own conclusions and we'll yeah, have to sure. talk about it on a <laughs> podcast someday. Sure. Sure. Um, I'm just looking for, I found one of the links. Mm-hmm. For this the Twin Oaks thing, the commune the commune. And this is um, Virginia Commune. There have been three books written about Twin Oaks. Two of them, though, by people in Twin Oaks, the same person. Mm-hmm. And then one very interesting one from the mother of someone that lived at Twin Oaks. It's a much more critical yeah, sure, sure. view. Uh, Virginia Commune. Documentary by Russian media. I think I have that right. It's uh, RT. Yeah. Russian time.
0: Yeah, Russia I, Times? I, I know. It's yeah, it's um, it's um, it's which means like Russian, uh, like the television for the society or something like that. <laughs> and it's not so popular actually. It's uh, it's like it's. It, I wondered because yeah, <laughs> yeah it had to be it had to be like our uh, like our BBC like our public uh, completely public non-governmental channel but yeah. after all it, it became like this I don't know no one knows what is in, on this
1: yeah. so this, it was a 30 minute so it was like a whole episode cool. uh, it's pretty interesting cool. mostly my friends <laughs> um, so yeah that's there for later for for exploration. Um yeah, I'm good. Okay. You wanna dig in?
0: I just want to start it once again with the Oh C- yeah, nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep,
0: okay. Okay. So now we will change our roles. Yeah. <laughs> and I have some questions for Derek cheers cheers man <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm really curious you know in a couple of things that you said me off air and on yeah. air too uh, and I think I want to start with this hippie community that you mentioned mm-hmm. once or twice. Um, what was the story actually how, how how it all goes
1: how it all so I, I want I always want to go back and I think that's allowed when I'm talking to a historian uh-huh, <laughs> sure When I was growing up, I was really fascinated by the 60s and the hippies movement. And there was one film in particular that captured my imagination when when I was a teenager, which is this film Hair. You know, it's the stereotypical, it's all these hippies in Central Park living together, loving each other, singing and dancing, hallucinating. Uh Um, And I was also really interested in communism. I was... I didn't really know what communism was. I didn't know the differences between socialism and communism, but I had this deep fascination with the idea that people would live and work together, this alternative to consumerism and capitalism growing up in the seventies and eighties. And I, and I think that the the mid to late eighties were one of the high points of that capitalist era for the United States. Uh, At least that's how it felt to me. Well, I end up going into the navy because i didn't have good enough grades or or family wealth to go to college and when i was in the navy unfortunately a war breaks out in kuwait and we're sent to fight in kuwait and while i'm on a battleship in the persian gulf somebody says i have these magazines i think you might like (laughs) because i was definitely one of the alternative guys on the ship and so he hands me a couple of magazines, and it was Utney Reader, U-T-N-E. Mm-hmm. And so Utney Reader is a really interesting magazine because they don't publish original articles, mm-hmm. at least as I understand it, and I don't know if it's still the case, that it was an aggregator. It, it's a print magazine in newsstands, very popular with, with high distribution, but it's mostly printing, reprinting articles from other small presses. And alternative presses mm-hmm. and it blew my mind i'd never seen anything like this never read a lot of these points of view before so it was one of the lifelines that i had i think while i was um deployed on on a battleship at sea for months on end
0: did you have a choice to go or not to go to the war
1: i enlisted in the navy so i wasn't drafted but i i didn't have a choice about actually going to desert storm mm-hmm. i was stationed on a ship so it was pretty much the ships going there so you're going <laughs> there but also we when we left for the persian gulf we didn't know there would be a war um saddam hussein had invaded kuwait but but george bush senior the first george bush in 1990 did his famous speech with the line i have drawn a line in the sand and with the idea that it he said an ultimatum if they didn't withdraw their troops. America was gonna invade with the support of the UN. So this UN force with, with most, I believe, most of the, the military might coming from the United States at that point. So when we went, we, we left in November, so that was two months before any, any open conflict. So we really didn't know we were going for war, but to be perfectly honest, I was absolutely hoping for war because it's what I'd been trained to do. It's what I'd been conditioned to expect. We were going over there as sailors with no ribbons on our chest. And you see military people in the movies, and usually they have like rows of ribbons, the generals, and so in the navy, it really is this gamification. It's like badges sure, that sure. that's so popular in education. Yeah, I've now. heard a lot
0: of this stuff a lot, you know, in, in Israel because oh, yeah. you know you trained a lot and you just want to you know, to explore it. You're, yeah, you're to deal something.
1: Yeah, it's not. I I don't think anybody yeah. ever wants to kill sure, other people. Sure. It's not about that, um, but it is that hunger, that war thirst, or like. So yeah, I definitely felt it going over there. I was really excited that. We were gonna see action, like that was the thing. We're gonna see action and and get some ribbons, get some medals, maybe not just ribbons, but um. So didn't know what was happening, and and I really became radicalized during the Gulf War, so during Desert Storm. It it being there and seeing what was happening from the inside, and then processing it on the downtime was how I. It really cemented my worldview, at least in terms of war and military might, um, the military machine. So very quickly I started to realize that I was adamantly opposed to that war and adamantly opposed to most, if not all war. It was something that I felt so strongly that I began um, I began the process for filing for conscientious objector status while I was still on the ship. It was something that I pursued. It, it's a formal process. You have to go through but again to be totally honest it, part of me still there was some mix of responsibility i wanted to i wouldn't want to do anything that would threaten the lives of the men that i was on the ship with and i had a pretty big responsibility running a target designation system which was really mostly about defending the ship so if i sort of Crossed my arms in combat engagement center and said, "I'm not touching those buttons. Uh That would that all that that would do is is put at risk the my friends and my colleagues and so I never never did I think I'm gonna like go on strike on the ship. Part of me, the ego part of me, thought, well, maybe it would have more impact. I would get press. I would get some. Not it wasn't about notoriety, but I would sort of get the word out." If I was a war veteran, Mm -hmm. so I thought I'm going to start filing for conscientious objector status now with the hope that when the war is over, when we're back in the U.S., then I will actually be a conscientious objector. And I would have that experience at the root of it. Um, But the war was over so quickly. It was literally it was less than two months. And interestingly, what's the date today?
0: 10th of January.
1: Okay, so the 16th of January is the twenty-five.
0: Yeah,
1: sure. Is that right? 25-year anniversary of the bombing of Baghdad mm-hmm. by my ship and many others. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's weird. Next week, it will be mm-hmm. 25 years. Yeah. I, I'm 45 now, or about to turn 46, and, and so I, I don't often think in those big chunks of time. That's a lot of time. I was only twenty years old then, so I've been alive longer yep. since. since yeah. Really weird, um, but the question was about the hair and commune. Yeah. How did yeah. I get to the commune? Well, it's it is it is directly related because one of those Utney readers had an ad in the back for it was it, they were advertising the Federation of Egalitarian Communities. And it is a small group of communities at that time. It might have been six or seven communes They they don't really refer to themselves as communes because that has its own Connotations and it's more about the hippie movement or somehow tied to Communism and that was something that was really not okay in the 80s so um they started using this term intentional community, a community that's been created and also has certain intentions built in. Today, we would refer to a community like Twin Oaks, the community that ended up joining as an eco-village because it has sustainability and deep ecology at the heart of how they live, even though that's not really necessarily part of the bylaws, it's become part of the ideology, I think. But this Federation of Egalitarian Communities, it, it, it was this little ad, and it said just enough to give me some understanding of what it was. And I remember, I, I can't tell you what day it was, but I can remember my first thought was, my God, if I knew these things existed, I wouldn't be here right yeah, now. Sure. I'd be in one of those communities. And so you, you um, they were advertising this this little this brochure, this free brochure, So I wrote, sent away, and I don't remember, I had the brochure on the ship, but I'm pretty sure I had it on the ship. So I must have gotten it. When we left for the Persian Gulf in November of 1990, the war began mid-January, like the 16th or 17th, depending on which side of the international dateline you were on, Mm -hmm. um, on the 16th of January, and the war was over by mid-March, maybe even the first or early second week of March because my birthday is the 28th of March and we had left the Persian Gulf and were actually crossing the equator on the way to Australia when I turned 21. So I have a pretty good sense. And then we returned to Long Beach, California where that was where our ship was from uh, by mid-May. So mid-May, we're back in the U.S., celebrated parades all these people are atoning for not welcoming back the vietnam veterans my father was a vietnam veteran so that that sort of went through my head but sometime between then and when i left the ship about six months later i got this catalog not a catalog a, a, a brochure it was maybe 20 30 pages with descriptions of each of the communities in this group and the um these were all communities that had certain things in common they were income sharing communities they were egalitarian so they're they were called it's the federation of egalitarian communities because their communities committed to valuing all work equally so everybody contributes and the work that they contribute is valued the same whether it's um, running a hammocks business or washing dishes it's literally valued the same Everybody gets a set wage and then um, it's more about putting the, the the time into your work versus output yeah. and The the third piece which I don't know if it mentioned it in the brochure, but that certainly spoke to my heart is committed to nonviolence. Mm-hmm. So those three tenants Twin Oaks was created in 1967 and the three bylaws or the three um do they call them? I mean bylaws are actually a thick binder of all sorts of things, but the three core beliefs or values of the community are this that they're egalitarian, they're income sharing, everybody's pooling their resources, and they're committed to nonviolence, not just physical violence, but also emotional and verbal violence, that kind of thing. Uh, so let's fast forward a little bit. I get out of I'm in the Navy for another year, I end up leaving the ship, going to another technical school but was de- having all sorts of physical health problems. I had the equivalent of a really deep bronchitis for nine months after Desert Storm and went through all the medical, I, I was on antibiotics for over six months straight. they tried different antibiotics for months at a time. Mm-hmm. And the way that military hospitals worked at that time or when we would go to sort of sick call, they would say, um, Oh yeah, we don't know what this is. Try an antibiotic. For, come back in 30 days. You go back in 30 days. Yeah, we still don't know what it is. Try this one. Then they'd start yeah. doing some tests. And I'll never forget. They 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 did a test once. They did these x-rays, these brain scans. And um they said, "Oh, wow. I don't know what that is. Here, come back in 30 days." Yeah. Like, what? Um so that process sort of I think probably amplified or accelerated the post-traumatic stress that I was feeling from being involved in active combat and I really did I lost my mind I started hallucinating I started becoming paranoid and that led to being in um, uh, in a military hospital for three weeks first for evaluation and then diagnosis and I was ended up diagnosed as Um, They call it Schizophreniform Disorder. Uh It's the first stage towards diagnosing you as schizophrenic. It was just enough that I would be discharged from the military with a medical discharge and even the possibility of some benefits or some pension or something. Uh, So it it was... one of the greatest things that could have ever happened to me I if think, only it had happened a year or two sooner i
0: think it was the case with jack kerouac
1: actually oh yeah he yeah he was an
0: enemy and he, has, yeah. he had this kind of uh, you know early stage of schizophrenia yeah absolutely
1: yeah yeah i um he's he was a big hero of mine i read on the road on the battleship yeah. <laughs> uh jack kerouac and um Lenny Bruce, the comedian, uh-huh. was also in the Navy. Mm-hmm. I think it was the Navy or was it Merchant Marines? Now I'm a little bit unsure. Mm-hmm. But I, Lenny Bruce, yes, he was in the Navy. And what Lenny Bruce did is he wanted to get out so badly once he'd been put on a ship that he started wearing a dress and parading yeah. around the <laughs> ship every day, just like <laughs> Colonel Klinger in yeah. Mash. Um, and M.A.S.H. And yeah, those those were some big heroes. I read his book How to Talk Dirty and Influence People while mm-hmm. I was in the Navy, mm-hmm. because of it was I think it was referenced in the film Pirate Radio, yeah, yeah, with like Christian Slater. Yeah, sure. yeah, it was a really interesting movie for its time. I, it had a big impact on me, uh-huh. and I'm pretty sure I saw that maybe my first year in the Navy. Uh-huh. So pretty great at that and heathers is another really good one that kind of goes <laughs> along with it that was a little bit earlier than that i think if yeah, if i'd seen heathers when i was in high school i would have been that i would have been like i would have got the trench coat and, and all of that um, but so i got a i got out of the navy with um, a medical discharge and one of the great benefits not only did it get me out of the navy two and a half years earlier than i would have been i was in for 6 years They require you to sign up for six years to go into the more sophisticated technical fields because you have to get 9 to 18 months of training to do electronics. Um, So I was a fire control technician working on fire control weapon systems, so we had to go to radar school and computer school and and all that. Um, So I got out in May of 92, So about a year, almost exactly a year after we got back from the Persian Gulf. And because of the disability, um, I was eventually given the schizophrenia sort of label that qualified me for just enough benefits that I could apply for a full scholarship through the Veterans Administration and in fact got that and ended up going to college for free for four years. Um, There's this great myth Mm -hmm. that the myth is called the GI Bill. This myth says, if you join the military and serve your country, we'll pay for college. It is not true. (laughs) What they do is if you sign up for the GI Bill, you put your money in and they match your money and put a little more. And at the end of three years or six years or nine years, depending on how long you've been in, you have some money to pay for college, <laughs> yeah. but some of it's your money and it's not enough for four years of college. It wasn't enough back then for one full year of college. Now I don't even think it's enough for one class Ew. or two classes at a college like MIT or, or somewhere. like. So it's it's a myth that really infuriates me uh-huh. because so many people, and I was one of them. My parents, I, I was... Um, because i didn't I didn't go into the Navy directly out of after high school, I kind of worked for a while. to be honest, I actually traveled with a carnival for six months. Uh, I wanted some adventure like Jack Kerouac uh, but then I had a job in a mall, like a shopping mall. One day I come home from work, and there's a Navy recruiter in my mother's living room. My mother had called the recruiter and invited the recruiter to the house mm-hmm. to get her son out of the house mm-hmm. like uh, so. But she, but she and my father really – they really thought this would be a great idea because it would give me discipline and I'd learn yeah. a trade and I would get to go to college on the GI Bill. Um, another thing that's important to know is I would not have been – I wouldn't have qualified – I don't know if I would have qualified for that scholarship had it not been for the war. So there also had to be declared a war to – because um, – Many states, including Massachusetts, where I'm from, passed laws after Desert Storm, making public college tuition free for veterans Mm -hmm. of Desert Storm, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that was only tuition, not fees and, and equipment and books and all that. But the scholarship that I got covered everything. As long as I went to a state school, I couldn't go to a private institution. But I ended up going to the University of Massachusetts and got a fantastic education. But I had a year between when I got out of the Navy and when I would start college. So it took many months of process to go through this whole transition before I qualified and got the scholarship. When I finally got the scholarship in the spring of 93, I also got a lump payment from the military for like the back pay when I got my diagnosis for schizophrenia. So I got whatever it was, some thousands of dollars U.S. And I decided that I would take some of that money and travel across the country. And what better way to explore this world of intentional communities than by leapfrogging, by visiting different intentional communities all the way across the country. Fortunately, in May of 93, there was an international intentional communities conference at Twin Oaks, where I would end up joining many years later, So I could drive to Virginia and meet people from communities from all over the world. So it was like going to a conference for intentional community. And that was one of the most intense, wonderful experiences of my life. I think it was like a long weekend, three days. It wasn't
0: like my historical conference. Not not exactly
1: (laughs) like what you described. Well, in part because I wasn't homesick. (laughs) So maybe it would have been if you were there. It was also in the woods, not in a city and clothing was optional, which I don't think was the case at your history conference, More or less. maybe by the end of it, after they'd had enough beer, then this mm-hmm. clothes started coming off. Um, but it was really great. I met so many people and talk about, I was so starving for, for intellectual stimulation, conversation, education, support that whole time that I was in the Navy. And for a lot of the time after, uh it was, so that was incredible. In fact, I stayed in Virginia for a full week. There was another small community forming nearby called Acorn. So tw- I was at Twin Oaks for the days of the conference and then met some people from Missouri that lived at a sort of another community in the Federation of Egalitarian Communities that I was going to be visiting. So I arranged to drive cross-country. I had my car, so they would ride with me, and then they would be my hosts in this other community in Missouri but they'd already arranged to spend time at this new community in Virginia. So we spent a week there Mm -hmm. and helped with gardening and anything that needed to be done. Washing mason jars from the root cellar that hadn't been used in years at this old farm. And one of the lovely things is some of the people that I met there during that time became friends of mine 12 years, 15 years later, whenever it was that I made it back there and and in one case she's become a very dear friend and i didn't recognize her mm-hmm. at first we our friendship re-began and then we realized that we had been yeah. connected so it was really cool um uh, so that's 1993 i did in fact drive cross country i had a 67 mustang <laughs> like which is the perfect car from the outside like this this great iconic american car yeah, what was what, white what? not red Whoa. And it wasn't a convertible (laughs) as it should have been. Uh And it was on its last legs. So like it broke down a few times and I'd be stuck somewhere. But I spent, I visited three or four communities on the way out. But Twin Oaks in Virginia is the oldest, biggest, most successful. But it had a very, the population there was like in the mid forties, 40 years old as as an average age. Mm -hmm. And I was 23 So that community didn't really appeal to me very much, though I liked a lot of the aspects that I saw. But when I was at this community called East Wind in Missouri, that really appealed to me. Like I fell in love with a few young, beautiful young women there. They had a much younger population. They had a somewhat more open, definitely more hippie feel to it. Uh, Much uh, more of a pagan um, aspect too, connection to the earth and – so I learned was that summer I learned a lot about paganism on that journey, but I really wanted to, I wanted to move to East Wind. Absolutely. If I didn't have the scholarship, there's no question in my mind, I would have moved there. I wouldn't have gone any further. But I thought, I've gone through all of this to go to college. Yeah. It would be not only would it be crazy for me not to at least try college, but I would be more valuable to the community once I had a college education. This is my thinking. And I still think that was true. So instead, I went, I did go, made it my way back to Boston, went to college. That winter, we have winter vacation, winter holidays. I did actually fly to East Wind and <laughs> spent more time at East Wind and liked it even more. And I was like, oh, I really want to be here. Yeah. Um, but the more that I got into my studies, the more it engaged some of the sort of ambitions that I had for for making films, writing books. So... I kind of, I set aside that, that idea of commune and and especially I did stay in touch as much as I could and as long as I could with some of my friends in Missouri, but then they gradually started leaving the community and that, that just meant that it wasn't as appealing as it would have been. So I graduate from college in 1997. I want to say something. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest benefits Of delaying going to college by five years so I graduated from high school in 1988 and I started college in 93 virtually all the people that I went to high school with graduated from college and got their bachelor's degrees in 1992 Mm -hmm. because I started in 93 and was there from 93 to 97 I entered that college with no email address Mm -hmm. never having surfed a web page no access. There were no consumer digital cameras, audio players. Almost nobody had cell phones. Mm-hmm. Only sort of business people had cell phones yeah, in 93. Sure. And virtually no students had laptops. Very few. My first nine months, most of my first year, I didn't have a laptop. I had a, a portable word processor, and that's all that it did. Um, and so this becomes really important because... By the time I graduate from college in ninety seven, I've studied digital music production, 3D animation, web development, graphic design, motion graphics, all this stuff that almost didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. So that was you know, that, that was one of the greatest outcomes that could have happened, the fact that I got that, that delay happened because I'd been really into computers when I was younger. Like even in the late 70s or early 80s when very few people had access. I was one of those Geeky kids that saved up and got a computer and had the great privilege of we I grew up on the edge of Boston So I was able to go into MIT and take programming classes mm-hmm. when I was in like 8th or ninth grade so 1983 I'm 12 13 14 years old taking these classes at MIT like really cool, but That didn't continue and then being able, that was all sort of reengaged when I was, uh, in college. So that spun me out back into the wide world. Eventually I find my way into teaching and web design and then start developing TV shows and worked. I had a career in Hollywood for three years. I worked in a television station first doing web design and then getting into media production and eventually, um, creating some TV shows that were never put on the air, but that that I put a lot of myself yeah. into. Uh, and then finally, one of the shows that I that I was just about, I mean, I, I spent all this time, it was an educational TV show, and not only did I get approval from the station to move forward with it, but I found a sponsor for it. They were going to be the sole sponsor. We were given the green light to shoot the pilot for it two days before 9-11. And 9-11, after that, for six to nine months, the television station became Terror Watch Today. Yeah. It's condition orange, <laughs> condition orange, like all that stuff. And then during that period, also, um, the, the multinational corporation Viacom bought our television station. Uh-huh. We were the second largest independent television station in the country, and all of a sudden, we're just part of Viacom. And they literally started combining us with the CBS affiliate, the mainstream network in Los Angeles. And it was clear that my job was going to be much more about managing Mm -hmm. a department. That's just not what I wanted to do. But just as I was sort of thinking I wanted to leave, I'm at the library. And what book do I pick up? Is It Utopia Yet? Mm-hmm. The, the story about Twin Oaks community written by one of the founders of Twin Oaks. And that book really convinced me to reconsider. So I, st- I wrote to those two communities again, East Wind in Missouri, Twin Oaks in Virginia, and um, went to Twin Oaks. Never actually got to East Wind because it turned out in those years I'd gotten older. So by now it's 2002. I'm I'm 32 years old, and the community's average age had gotten younger. Mm -hmm. So it turned out now when I went and did a – at a community like that, you do a three-week visit as a way to sort of try out the community. Mm -hmm. You work with the community, and it also gives them a sense of who you are, what your work ethic is. Mm -hmm. Work is very important in a community where you're pooling your resources. So I spent three weeks there and knew within one week – that's where I wanted to be, absolutely. I, and I had to go away for a month. They have, um, they they want to make sure that you have time to reflect. In the community, has time to reflect. So I went away, and I I visited there for the f- first three weeks of January of two thousand three, and I ended up joining Twin Oaks. I think it was March first of two thousand
0: three. And what is exactly the joining process? They have to some kind of just like. Put you or just elect you that you can be a part of the community. Yeah,
1: after, uh, at, in the last week of your three-week visitor program, you would there's a process that involves a long interview with three people. There's a team. Uh, there are a lot of groups and and uh, bureaucracies. Yeah. There, yeah, there, there's a bureaucratic sure, process. Sure. So um, they have like a new member team. Uh, is that what it was or membership team? Mm-hmm. I'm forgetting which team. There was a new member team. Well, whatever. Um, it was sort of like what we're doing right now. There'd be three people and they ask you twenty five questions, maybe, or or and it a lot of it involves you telling your life story. I think maybe you tell your life story and then they ask you these questions. Uh And some of them they go, Oh yeah, you covered that one in your life story, you covered that one but this mm-hmm. and then they make a recommendation to the community. They have an open forum where people can give feedback about, oh, yeah, I worked with that guy in the dairy shed milking the cows, I didn't like him. Or, you know, hopefully, it's more specific than that. Mm-hmm. But most it, it takes a lot to, um, Twin Oaks is, is they're, they're pretty open. The group mind, the group process means that. You need some really specific things to be rejected from that. So usually, what they'll do is they might do what's called a visit again. It means come for another three weeks. We're not sure. We're not. We're not sure where you would fit, or we're not sure how we feel about you, or whatever. Even just getting that is not a good feeling. I know many people that got that. Yeah, that's very yeah. Um, I didn't get a visit again. They actually welcomed me to the community. And once you're in the community, it's a provisional period for like three to six months. Uh-huh. So it means you you don't have voting rights uh-huh. and you don't have health care. So it's the community saying, yes, you can come and work with us. You can contribute. You can start to build up a vacation balance. And But um, we want to make sure that it's a right fit before you're. We're, we're doing all the legal things that make you part of this community and where you are affecting legislation and change because Every member has an equal say in, in decision making in Twin Oaks. All the businesses and all the property and all the vehicles and everything are collectively owned. So, um, yeah, before you drive me, the truck, we want to make sure you're sure, okay. Sure.
0: It, it reminds me of kibbutz a lot, you know. Yeah, yeah. 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 I
1: mean, and, and a lot of people, even at Twin Oaks, refer to them their community as an American kibbutz. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot a lot of symmetry.
0: It yeah, just you know, I just remember that you know that short story. Uh, it was my experience with my with one friend of mine in kibbutz he was a Colombian mm-hmm. and we worked in a kitchen together and in the canteen and you know once he just came to me and told me you know like that like Sergey, <coughs> you know I really missed bad people here <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a, that kind of experience you know that because all that you know that peaceful you know this way like nice you know, and yeah. calm yeah, and sure, sure. Yeah. sure. and then, you know like yogurt you know every, yeah. every day
2: <laughs> yogurt <laughs> you, and you, granola
0: yeah you, you yeah, yeah you, have, you have this this feeling that you want you know to to do something to destroy yeah. something here yeah and it's very cool that they you know, in that time they had this you know this volunteer system which worked you know a lot you know, in exactly in that thing, that if you want some violence, just ask some volunteers, you know, to do so.
1: How yeah. long were you at a kibbutz for?
0: Uh, as a volunteer, I was just for a couple of months, but mm-hmm. after it, I was visiting, uh, visited kibbutz, like, for a couple of times, because my my cousin was a member of the kibbutz, mm-hmm. and after he was in uh, actually in Israeli Navy for, the, like, two and a half years, oh, wow. and I came to visit him. Wow. Like,
1: Time time. so is is your was your cousin born in israel no no he was just you know new, new citizen mm-hmm. yeah. from russia from russia yeah what what would that process be like like <laughs> how how does a russian move from russia to actually israel actually, and become part of the israeli navy
0: yeah but you know you know if you we talk about the bureaucratic way it's very simple because yeah. you know uh, they have a it's, um, some kind of it's kind of dubious law but if you are actually have a, if you are a Jew it's it's quite simple for you and mm-hmm. my cousin is you know it's he's really a Jew and uh, for him it was like maybe month or two with his uh, his own cousin in uh, I think it was in Rehavot, yeah, Tel Aviv mm-hmm. and after maybe um, a year in a kibbutz uh, where he worked Firstly, as a volunteer, and after he invited him to be a kibbutznik, and uh, maybe a couple of months later, I came to visit him, and I also oh. became a volunteer, and it was a great time actually. When before his, you know, his duty in the Israeli Navy, and um, if we talk about the army, I think it, there there were a lot of similarities with your story because mm-hmm. if, if you have to go to the army, my My cousin Grisha, he's he's that guy that, okay, if I have to go, I want to go to the, you know, the best department of the army, I want to be the best, I want to be the Mm -hmm. toughest guy and, you know, all this Rambo-free stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because of that, he finally, he went to the Navy and he was in that, you know, small ship uh, near the border to Beirut Mm -hmm. and he served for the two years and a half it's a long time really yeah and hey yeah, it's it, of course it's hard of course you know you have some he, he wasn't in any you know trouble because because any military trouble but it's still very you know you feel lonely you feel really sad from time to time yeah yeah and I, I, w- I was really happy for him that he finally finished And we made this also, you know, connection with your story. We made this thing called uh, Shvil Israel, which is, you know, the whole way all around Israel. It's uh, because Israel actually is quite small, but Mm -hmm. the whole Shvil Israel, it's 1000 kilometers
1: because it it goes. It's a little smaller than either of our countries.
0: Mm. Yeah, really, really, (laughs) really much smaller. And if you want to make a thousand kilometers in Israel, you have to go like, you know, with the circles, like like that, like that, like that and uh, actually i haven't finished my my trip which i i was uh, still i have some you know some regrets about it but i was you know i have uh, i already had a child who was very little mm-hmm. and after one month of doing this these circles yeah i was tired and i have a lot of stuff to do in moscow so i really had to go and grisha uh, he was with uh, his girlfriend who is now his wife with two children mm-hmm. and together they made the whole trip for the two months from really? you know from the mountains on the north to the like desert and the uh, deep deep south yeah, and after it he actually he came back to Russia and it's it, it's you know now he's in Russia working in LL. Uh, it, it's it's you know the, this Israeli air
1: company mm mm-hmm.
0: yeah. He used his military skills and also his knowledge of Hebrew and Russian at the same time
1: was he on kibbutz before or after the military service uh, before before mm-hmm. yeah and he was it, it, as it, a did he grow up on kibbutz
0: no no he, he was just like uh, maybe for the year and a half he, uh, firstly he worked as a like like, like me after him worked in a canteen. Mm-hmm. And after he worked with the cows in this, you know, I don't know how we call called in English, this big farm with the cows. Yeah, know.
1: like a dairy or... A... Probably
0: it was cow farm with the milking and stuff. Yeah. With a lot of, actually with a lot
1: of computers
0: in it. Mm-hmm. With a lot of like automatic milking. Oh, wow. And he was like a guy with, uh,
1: you know... Yeah, Twin Oaks <laughs> is not anti-technology, but they don't have any computers in the dairy barn. They, yeah. do, they do have their own cows for milk. So they provide, not only provide all their own milk... They also pretty much um, produce virtually all the cheese <laughs> that they use. So they have cheese processing. They have dairy. They make yogurt. They make all the soft cheeses and the hard cheeses. Cool. So that that part was really cool. <laughs> and I've never eaten better. And certainly within maybe six months, I was down to the weight I'd been in the navy. I was in at my like ideal weight. And uh-huh. then I I lived at Twin Oaks for two and a half years. A little over two and a half years. And then within probably six months after leaving I'd gone right back up to the uh-huh. the weight that I am. Not uh-huh. now. I'm probably heavier now than I was back then. But uh-huh. put on the I was back to uh-huh. square one, sort of. But yeah. they, they produced in summertime when I was there the the um the number that we shared was we said in summer we could produce about sixty to sixty five percent of our own food to feed over a hundred people um, and sometimes 120. It, it, the community really swells in the summer because of the conference and people visiting and friends. And and it's a very open community. You You can, like, if you were really interested, even if you didn't know me, mm-hmm. you could kind of reach out to the community and say, hey, I'm in Russia. I'm a historian. Is there somebody there willing to host me? Mm -hmm. And they would find some They'd put up a a sign and someone would be like, yeah, I'll totally host a (laughs) Russian historian. (laughs) Um, And you'd be there. You could be there like for several weeks before people would start to be like, wait a minute, who's this guy? that's not doing any work (laughs) because it is really about work. So you, you, it's wild how much you stand out if you're not working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have
0: a, lo- a lot of, you know, the same circumstances in, in the kibbutz. Because yeah. of the yeah. first time I was a guest, and it was cool, but, you know, after maybe a couple of weeks, I realized that I have to work here. Yeah. Because, because I, I, I started to feel shame when I go to the canteen and t- took some food. Yeah, Everything was more or less all right, but I was like, I don't know. Like, Who yeah. is he? Oh, he's Grisha's cousin. Ah, okay, okay, okay. I,
1: is he still Grisha's cousin? Yeah, is he he's yeah. still Gr- and it's that, really yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, sure. And you also, what's great about it is, even if it's work that you don't want to do, you're really getting the community experience by doing the work. And typically, you're doing with other people, and you're getting to know them at a deeper level than if you're just having a conversation. Mm-hmm. Like conversation is about intellect and sharing experience and yeah, stories yeah. and all that. But when you work with someone, you really see who they are like you get this yeah. it's demonstrated it's like when we you, if you study writing mm-hmm. and you you do creative writing you're supposed to show not tell you want the you want to you want character to emerge through behavior and choices that the character makes rather than just describing who they are and this is yeah, the greatest sure. guy like yeah, yeah, sure. harry potter is renowned <laughs> throughout <laughs> the wizard and with, that kind of thing
0: yeah sure yeah. I think in my case it was some uh, not problems but some differences because of the language Mm -hmm. and my boss in the canteen actually he was from Ethiopia and his English was much 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 more limited than even mine so he was like Sergei do this or Sergei clean this or uh, famously Sergei today me (laughs) sick so and so on but We were really good friends, but you know, in this more or less in the sign kind of language, not not that you, we use that we make a podcast or something like that. Yeah. that's great. And um, why did you why did you leave your community?
1: It's somewhat complicated, but it's easy to to share some of the things that were missing for me. Mm-hmm. One of the big things was I worked harder in the community than I ever did. Before, even then, I worked much harder at Twin Oaks than I did in the Navy. Oh, and the Navy is like slave labor. So it was whoa. sort of like <laughs> slave labor at <laughs> Twin Oaks. Um, I was doing a lot of intellectual work. I wasn't doing a lot of heavy labor, mm-hmm. but the intellectual work really wore me down. And it was, we made, I think it the allowance back then was something like $72 a month. Everyone got exactly $72 a month. But we had our we had our sort of the restaurant for the community that was all free and mm-hmm. cars and all, so we didn't didn't really need much, and I it was easy for me to earn some money outside of the community if I wanted to do something like travel. Although mm-hmm. I I really did very little travel. My first year at the community, I don't think I even left other than locally. I, I did very little. Um, I mean, I guess I did go on one sort of road trip with people for a few days to a neighboring town. Or a neighboring state, I mean to North Carolina, but um, never left the country, didn't do, really didn't leave the region during that whole time. Uh, but I was working really hard and there was a lot of stress. And as I was doing it, I would see these people not working so hard, uh-huh. not so stressed. Uh-huh. Some of them really not working much, no stress. And I was just, I would get frustrated because they were some of the same people that were arguing that we should be buying all organic. Groceries, yeah. And I'm like, okay, great. Where's the money coming from? And I, I became involved not just with the – I worked a lot with the primary business, which was this hammocks manufacturing business. <laughs> I started doing marketing and then eventually was on the general management team and did some um, – what did we call it? Like, uh, like the, for the manufacturing, I would actually – do studies about how efficient different departments were and how we could increase production.
0: And did like, you feel, you know, this kind of I don't know how how to put it, this kind of disconnection between this capitalistic approach and
1: the whole ideas of absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it was one of the inherent contradictions in the community. Part of why community, what by why Twin Oaks is so large mm-hmm. geographically. I mean, they had. I think it's 450 acres or something. They're even a little bit bigger now, quite big. Mm-hmm. Really a, a village and with some beautiful buildings, a lot of buildings, so dormitories. There were 92 adult members most of the time that I was there, that's the cap mm-hmm. based on the available space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you go to, to a lot of intentional communities, they're either in cities in very inexpensive buildings or they're rural in old farmhouses or kind of thrown together things but twin oaks has this incredible architecture and there's a sense of design and even a certain aesthetic there Mm -hmm. and that was at least in part if not large part funded by this hammocks business not just that it's not like they were selling their hammocks to hippies (laughs) from the early 70s they were selling to a multinational chain this store called Mm -hmm. um, pier one imports Mm -hmm. and so pier one imports was paying Twin Oaks very little money per hammock, uh-huh. so Twin Oaks was really like China to them. Yeah. <laughs> and we would and and it was it was really difficult. So when I started there, um, as I took on more and more responsibility in the hammocks business, so this is I joined in 2003, and I wanted to mention another irony: the day that I joined Twin Oaks was the day that the United States started the ground war in Iraq again. (laughs) So there was another Gulf War that started the same day. Uh, Really weird. Um, But so I joined March of 2003 and I stayed until um, like the spring of 2005. And I kind of date my time there from when I started my visitor period at the beginning of January, especially Mm -hmm. because I spent time at another community in between mm-hmm. doing work for Twin Oaks, mm-hmm. like for their for their hammocks business mm-hmm. already. So even before I joined Twin Oaks, I was doing some marketing work, like web design yeah. stuff. Um, when I began there, my whole first year, maybe year and a half, we were still fully dependent on this company, Pier One. Mm-hmm. And every year, for many years, maybe every six months, maybe every two months, Whoever was working in the hammocks business, managing it, responsible, would say something like, this is not sustainable. Yeah. If pure 1 changes their mind, it's going to devastate not just our community, but we started farming out the production of hammocks. So as the business grew, because an intentional community can't hire workers from outside of the community, so that's not an option. What they would do is partner with other communities. So East in Missouri became a big partner with Twin Oaks mm-hmm. and that was part of the relationship through the years between those communities. In fact, East in Missouri was founded by people that came from Twin Oaks. So they want to create another community, like clone their community with slightly different values. Um, And then both those big communities still couldn't make enough hammocks. Mm -hmm. And you can't demand that people make hammocks. There's other work that needs to be done in the community. So then you start creating these other entities, these smaller communities, or maybe even just people in the community who are Mm ex-members. So by the time I was involved, there were all these little satellites and... The way it was structured was so that the big communities could always make as many hammocks as they wanted to. Mm -hmm. But then there'd be enough of these little communities to make all the hammocks to finish the order that needed to go to Pier 1, by and large. Really tricky. And so guess what happened (laughs) while I'm running the business with a few other people. Pier 1 says, we're not going to be carrying hammocks anymore, Mm -hmm. with no notice. Like they basically... I can't remember the exact timing. Let's say it's summer of 2004, I think. Uh, summer of 2004, I'm in my room. Every adult member at Twin Oaks gets their own room. That's one of the important things. So mm-hmm. even married couples have their own separate rooms, some of them in different buildings, some of them adjoining if they want to, but it's it's something that was really important. A bit like, uh, have you heard of this book, A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf? Sure. A really yeah, famous yeah. feminist book. <laughs> So like that, everyone should have a room of their own. Um, So picture me, I'm in my room and I've got my my power book and I open it up and there's an email from Pier One and the email says, we will no longer be carrying to an Oaks hammocks. (laughs) Like, so years of people speculating and and I'm just the latest person that's crunched the numbers to try to show the community how non-sustainable it is only a few months before maybe four or five months before that with this other um we, we had a general management team instead of having one general manager so a few of us on the team started engaging the community saying hey we don't like this we we need to diversify um so i get this email and and I'll, that was one of the most intense days of my life i think it it it's almost I could relate it in some ways to when we started firing Tomahawk missiles at Kuwait. Because mm-hmm. with the Tomahawk missiles, because I was a fire control technician, I went to school for nine months and I learned how weapon systems work, including the Tomahawk. Mm-hmm. So I had all this knowledge about the Tomahawk. And then I spent a year doing simulations, war games on a battleship. like, And then all of a sudden we're firing Tomahawk missiles. So I'm not saying that I knew more than anyone else on the ship about what that meant. But I am saying I'm someone that knew a lot about what that meant. I had a sense way more than just seeing a blip on a radar or that it's history. Or I really had a deep understanding of what was happening. Same thing in Twin Oaks. And it's almost the same timing. It's like I've spent a year working on the hammocks business. And and then all of a sudden, I'm the one holding this email. And I can remember I had to... post the letter so i had to walk through the woods from my the whole way thinking <laughs> yeah. like and it's it's the most complicated thought process imaginable i'm it's horrified i'm excited yeah. i'm like this is gonna force the hand of the community and really by the time i get to the the dining hall this building called Zonkoya, we we call it zk for short where we have the equivalent of a message board except it's yeah. physical uh-huh. and so I'm posting <laughs> this email and it would be really interesting to see the actual email as it was posted with because they would put it on you put it on a clipboard yeah you take you put it on a clipboard with blank pieces behind it and then people just like a message board right yeah but, sure um, I don't know if I wrote anything on it. I don't know if I wrote, like, an introduction or uh, anything. Like, part of me wishes I didn't write anything. I probably had to have written a little something. Like, I didn't want people to just be like, <gasps> <Yeah. laughs> like seeing this Star of David in my scratchbook. <gasps> like, you're not ready for it. You're yeah, not. So, um, yeah, I don't know. But But by the time I posted it, I thought it was one of the best things that could have ever happened to the community. I thought this is going to keep me in this community forever. Like now we can really build something that's sustainable. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, But that was about nine months before I left the community. So what happened is in the course of the sort of the aftermath, community going into crisis mode, and you know as a historian now mm-hmm. you have, that's when the, the big changes happen. You have this thing that forces change. Um, it meant that Within about six months, I had a sense the community was not going in the direction that I really wanted it to go. And parallel to that, a relationship that I'd been in for a long time ended with someone in the community. And I'd fallen in love with this other person in the community who started a relationship with someone else. Mm -hmm. And there weren't a lot of people my age and with my sort of view of the world. And and Mm -hmm. I'm kind of an intense guy, so I need to be with kind of an intense person. There wasn't so much of that there. So... So I was thinking, okay, I don't think they're building businesses in the way that I really wanna be involved. I don't see a potential partner, girlfriend, wife, like mm-hmm. that was part of why I moved to Twin Oaks. I'm about to turn 35, mm-hmm. I'm not making money. So it's not like it's gonna be easy for me to kind of go somewhere else if I spend another year or two. So I just thought, yeah, I think, I think this is it. And so I wrote a letter to the community saying, giving like two months notice, Mm -hmm. maybe three months. I really wanted to make sure there was plenty of time because I was involved with so much. Mm -hmm. And fortunately it's a team. So it meant they weren't losing, you know, the the community. I have to say my ego was hurt quite a bit when I saw how easily the community continued without me. (laughs) I was like, what's the community going to do? And there were some people that were, there were definitely a few people that were sort of like, oh no, like. You really it's there were very few people that tried to talk me out of it if anybody because that's almost an unspoken rule that you don't try to talk someone into joining twin Oaks mm. or out yeah. of yeah. leaving um but it definitely it it strained if not ended some friendships, and that's not rare that that would happen, so yeah, that's I ended up leaving, but I didn't go far I only went about uh. To the next small city, the city Charlottesville, Virginia, a really,
2: mm-hmm. really <laughs> historic
1: place. As a, as a historian, you got to come to the U.S. Uh-huh. And if you go to the U.S., of course, you'll go to Boston, of course, you'll go to New York. But before you get all those other cities, you should really go to Charlottesville, Virginia, <laughs> homeland of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, and sure. that's where you have not only Monticello, but the University of Virginia, which he designed. And it was the first secular university in the US. I think one of the first in the world, like very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I I lived in that nearby city for five more years. So I was in the sort of extended community. I still um, did some consulting for the business in the community. I went back once a week and still spent time with children that I'd been mm-hmm. um like a mentor, or they had a thing there that I really loved called primaries. So you were being sort of like an adult friend, or companion for young children, but you would get labor credit for it. It was work. Mm -hmm. Although it was one of the only areas in the community where they, they could only value it at half credit, Mm -hmm. because of the number of children, it would have been, the impact would have been really bad on the community on the economy, if that was one area that they needed to control. And also there were parents that said, you know what? I don't want, I don't want people doing primaries because they need to make quota. Like mm-hmm. I want to make sure that they're doing it because it's what they want to do. So I got really close to two children. One who was just a, less than a year old when I joined. I think she was maybe six months old or something like mm-hmm. that. Pretty young. And then um, her brother who was a few years older. Mm-hmm. So they became, I now think of them as my fairy godchildren. Mm-hmm. And I was just with them. I was just hanging out with them. In fact, Jonah, the, the two and a half year old then, just turned 15? Either 14, 15, or 16. I think it's 14 or 15. Uh-huh. 15. Um, so I was just at his birthday party in November. Like literally since yeah. I, I was, they, they I was were, lost in Moscow. And then in was was the there. community. No. Well... This is interesting. Their parents split up in the Mm -hmm. community. One of them stayed and one left. So the father stayed. The mother left. Moved to the same city where I did. In fact, we shared a house together. She met somebody else. Fell in love. And they wanted to have a baby together. And the community said, yet. Like, literally, the community. Because Promethea had already had two children in community. It's... For a long time, the community discouraged anyone having more than one child. And then there was a cap at two. Two was really pushing it. Three, no way. Whoa. like Because it is a lot of time and money that goes into supporting a mother with a child and a yeah. father with a child, a family with a child. And the community does support. I mean, in my country, most women the most they would ever get for maternity leave is three months. Usually it's like, what, eight to 12 weeks or something? Maybe six yeah. weeks, and some don't get any.
0: Yeah, it's, it's the theme of, you know, the, the scientific theme that we, which were pr- approached by my girlfriend, actually, when yeah. we were in Paris. Her work was about how long did you get when you're a mother? What, what, wow. what kind of time do you have, like, to raise your baby? And w- what it goes, you know, if if we talk about feminism, we, which time is good, and because of what, what, what are cultural differences between Russia and France because of it, and so on. So I know quite a bit
2: about it.
1: So then guess how much maternity leave, or I want to reframe it a little bit, mm-hmm. how much time do you think a community like Twin Oaks would give a mother to be a mother full-time? Mm. You mean without any labor work? Yeah, work, or yeah. like maybe modest labor, but where primarily that's what they My do. That's kibbutz their job.
0: experience says that like a little time, maybe a month or two, just because it's a commune, you know, and, and a child is also quite a bit a communal child. Sure. So we have to raise him together or her together. So it's just a little time for the like biological time. And after we should put it like a child somewhere and you should work and like to be with him in the holidays or something like that. Yeah.
1: So at Twin Oaks, it's more like a year. Okay. It sounds like (laughs) Like Big time. Although that's not quite accurate, but what they do is they give a full labor budget. So if labor quota, everybody has to do, say, 40 to 46 hours of labor a week, and it varies different times of the year and depending on productivity level and, and how much money the community has spent, they can flex it a bit. But let's say it's 40 for simple math. They give a forty-hour budget for to the child, mm-hmm. kind of, and then the parents can divvy up that time. So it's really cool. It means that the um, either parent can be the primary caregiver. Um, so it could be the father that actually mostly is a dad for a year or more, and then over time that forty hours decreases, mm-hmm. but three four five years old it's still i don't know exactly let's say it's 30 hours and you, know, you can give that time to other adults to help you with that hmm, and, cool, and it becomes part of the education okay. but it's a lot
0: yeah but you know curiously but but in russia it sounds not, not so i'm not so amazed just because you know yeah. we have this we probably i'm i'm quite sure that we inherit all this stuff from the soviet times yeah. because we have this you know more or less socialistic views on it so you can i think you can take like two years for sure if you're a mother and mm-hmm. you have a budget i think it depends sometimes of your of, of your work but you can yeah. you, you can have a budget for this and that's you, wild. You, you can live, yeah, with, yeah. that's what you know because of the economical situation it's, it's always sure. you know in danger yeah exactly these kind of things
2: yeah sure
1: yeah <laughs> cool but cool yeah so i left In 2005 and then I left Virginia in 2010 but I still have many many friends many dear friends but the people that I'm closest to are ones who've left and then stayed connected so when when that couple so these two kids Jonah and Gwen their parents split up they weren't actually legally married so Mm -hmm. that makes it a little easier their father stays in the community their mother goes to a neighboring community So what they did is started splitting time. So around the time the kids were maybe five and seven? No, no, it it must have been more like four and six or five and seven, somewhere in there, they would divide their time. Part-time in mainstream, it's usually referred to in Twin Mm -hmm. Oaks. Yeah, they're in mainstream part of the week and, and at Twin Oaks part of the week. And for some number of years, they continued to be homeschooled. But at a certain point, the kids really decided that they wanted to go into public schools. And fortunately, both parents really had same, have very similar values in terms of education. Mm-hmm. So they encouraged the kids to go into public school. But that meant that then they needed to change the division a bit so that they could be in public school in the city. Mm-hmm. So now they're, you know, four or five nights a week with the mother, and only two or three nights a week with the father, but more time during the summer. And that has seemed to work, and the kids are incredible. They're, um, Gwen skipped a grade two years ago, and Jonah is, is doing, like, college-level math and science, and they're really cool kids, but I'm totally biased. (laughs) Whoa. Oh, let's make a small poll.
2: Yeah.
1: For Sasha. For, um... Yeah, for Sasha. For T- Sonia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, a big chunk of sort of, like, quasi-interview me of you, and then a big chunk of quasi-interview you of me that, of course, got into some really cool dialogue and, and some great conversation. We covered maybe 10% of what we had hoped to explore in our first podcast together, which is really exciting. It means that we have a lot more to say down the road. So I wonder, you, you've you been wanting to do a podcast for a long time. You bought the microphone before you met me. How is this, uh, is this what you were thinking your podcast would be? Are Is it giving you ideas for what you could do more consistently in Russia as a podcast or series of podcasts? Hmm. I'm not sure yet but
0: you know i just thought that it's kind of the medium that i like actually because i just you know i just want to have something to talk about with this kind of really shiny bright thing called blue yeti or <laughs> like that. and I, I probably i just you know i just want to have another reason to talk about interesting things and i want to you know to have some people to talk about it and Probably I'm a bit tired of uh, writing, or maybe, maybe not tired, but I want to do it more in a dialogue way, more, you know, with the spectators and with mm-hmm. the people, just with sharing some some thoughts and ideas. Probably it's because of that. And also, probably it's because of, you know, it's some kind of, I don't know, neurosis, you know, during my insomnia and other <laughs> stuff, because I, 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 I really listen to a lot of different podcasts. And you know, I just realized probably a couple of months ago that I'm I'm really you know I'm listening to a lot of podcasts about board games about non-league football in, in England. Could you
1: yeah. tell us a few titles? Like, could, are there a few that you would like to yeah, promote? Yeah,
0: sure, sure. Uh, I think it's a really good one called Ludology. Oh yeah, Ludology, Ludology. about the boarding like art of boarding games. Yeah, like Ludology. <laughs> Today we'll talk about faith in you know in board games. <laughs> <laughs> Something that. It's it's a really cool one. And also, you know, a lot of a lot of Mark Maron, a lot of national public radio. I really like that. Fresh f- air. Fresh air, yeah. With Terry Gross and stuff. I quite like their musical podcast called All Songs Considered. Yeah. Well and all songs considered. And uh, yeah, yeah but i think my favorite one is about uh, actually cultural stuff about football called uh, bbc world football phone in with Dotan adebayo this shakespearean actor uh, from nigeria who is their main guy really cool one
1: cool yep some of my favorites are um, i've listened to film spotting for years uh uh-huh. which sometimes i love and sometimes it gets me really riled up Mm-hmm. Not, not just because I disagree with what they're reviewing, but I disagree with their interpretation of what rev- critique is. Yep. I would say they're doing film reviews, not really doing critique. Mm-hmm. And I wish that there was more critique. And I haven't found the film critique podcast that would really mm-hmm. do it for me so far. Um, but I still listen consistently and enjoy it. They had something they d- used to do that I loved so much. It's one of my favorite games now. Mm -hmm. I do it sometimes if I'm on a long drive, they, for a while they were doing this thing. How would you, um, they would, they pick a film. Mm -hmm. And so like they pick a film like, um, the big Lebowski Mm -hmm. and they say, okay, the big Lebowski, if it was filmed in any other time, Mm -hmm. who would direct it and who would the cast be? That's cool. It's really cool. Yeah, And I I did several of them. I think the only one that I submitted was Big Lebowski because I got so excited about what I stumbled on as the idea. So because it didn't make it to the podcast, I want to share it here now. Imagine, The Big Lebowski, directed in the early to mid-1960s by Billy Wilder (laughs) and starring... Andy Griffith, (laughs) as the Big Lebowski. I mean, as the dude. Uh And it's really weird at first, but when you think about it, and it turns out, um, and they part of the game is that it has to be actors that would have worked with, or had, or did work with, like what their cast of characters. And in fact, Andy Griffith was the lead in a Billy Wilder film, Uh which is what—that's how I sort of found him. And I thought, oh yes, he could totally do it. <laughs> and then I, I don't remember the whole cast. I'm, I'm not sure I remember any of the cast. Who is Steve
0: Buscemi of
1: I'm going to have to find this. I'm yeah, going to sure, find sure. it. And maybe we could resurrect it for our podcast. Yeah, we, yeah. we could do it. It could be just not just films. We could do it as an album. Like we could say, who would do Pink Floyd's The Wall in yeah. another time? Yeah, sure, like sure. Now or something. Like it'd be kind of cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. We, we played this, you know, it's not exactly similar game, but it's also like, like that, that we played with my, one of my friends, we played, um, it's kind of handshakes, if you want to handshake, like, I don't know, this uh, um, Tim Robbins, and the, you know, the guy in Russian movie the, called Khabiansky, oh, during the handshake,
1: you know, from movie to movie, Yeah, yeah. he
0: plays in that movie, who directed yeah. by this guy. Who was a friend of in that guy with that? We call
1: it six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Okay. It's a similar game. <laughs> sure. Where you can you can do it in six steps. Yeah. Although um, that game getting... is only actors. I like the idea of using directors too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Oh, we should play handshake sometime. Yeah. <laughs> We'd be really good at beating other people. We should form a yeah, team. Yeah. Well, it um, on the theme of. Oh, you just said something that reminded me of the beginning that was going to make it such a good end, and now I can't remember <laughs> what it was. I guess. But as I'm looking at this microphone, if you look at it from the side, it really reminds me of Empire Strikes Back. Yep. Like the Snow Walkers. <laughs> like, boom. I don't want to do it because it's microphone and people are hearing it, but it's pretty cool. Yep. Um, <laughs> I guess it was maybe on the theme of pod. Oh, here's what it is. Yep. What we're, That game uh, is about alternate history. Mm-hmm. And we were brought together to work on this history and this entertaining education project or educational entertainment project that you've been working on for quite a bit uh, on the French Revolution. And now I've come in and, and I might be working on a of another aspect of it that involves alternate history. Mm-hmm. So it would be really fun to do another podcast while I'm still in uh, Moscow on the theme of alternate history Mm -hmm. because we talked about history a lot today and Mm -hmm. shared our own history so maybe we could explore uh alternate history and how it's portrayed in film and media and and maybe talk a bit about the project that we're Mm -hmm. we're considering working on together i think that would be really cool
0: yeah sounds great yeah thanks that's
1: it yep cheers Cheers. good night everybody oh no i i I actually like saying this one um Oh, I forgot it, though. I was about to say a leech now, but that's not right. No, uh... Put it. Put it. <laughs>